Welcome to In Search of Wisdom, a podcast by the Perennial Leader Project. On today's episode, my guest is Dr. Joshua Nab, the author of Christian Meditation in Clinical Practice. Dr. Nab is a board-certified clinical psychologist. Some of his research interests include mindfulness-based therapies, the psychology of religion and spirituality, and Christian meditative and contemplative practices. In the conversation, we discuss searching for wisdom, contemplative practices, navigating our thoughts, transcending the self, wisdom in daily life, and much more. Now, without further ado, please welcome the wise and gracious Dr. Joshua Nabb. Well, Josh, welcome to In Search of Wisdom. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Well, it's a pleasure. I've been looking forward to the conversation. I initially heard you on my friend Brian Russell's podcast, who who came on our show as well. And I heard you describe yourself as a miner with a hard hat, kind of a flashlight searching. So I'm, I'm curious, what initially started this search and what would you say you're searching for? Yeah. Uh, so I, you know, I'm, I'm a clinical psychologist, so uh, I have a license uh, to practice psychology in California. And, and so as I was going through my graduate program, um, you know, mindfulness-based therapy, so mindfulness coming from, from the Buddhist religious tradition primarily, um, started to gain popularity. I mean, it started probably in the 90s, but it really grew in popularity as I was in graduate school, you know, around two, starting around 2005 uh, to about 2010. And uh, I think clinical psychologists were grappling with this idea, what do we do with psychological suffering when it doesn't go away? And so there were these newer acceptance-based, mindfulness-based therapies that were developing that really uh, tried to help clients relate differently to their unpleasant inner experiences rather than trying to reduce or eliminate psychological suffering. And this is something, of course, we've been grappling with for millennia, right? Uh, what do we do with pain when it doesn't go away? Um, and so I was intrigued by, and based on my own life experiences too, of, you know, I tend to be an anxious person and had some earlier uh, trauma in my life that that really just wasn't going away, the pain. And so I, I personally had to learn to relate differently to it, recognizing that life had to go on and, and I couldn't simply, you know, wait around uh, to, to get relief that probably would never come. And so in my own life experiences and then looking around me and seeing so many clinical psychologists turning to the East and growing up within the Christian tradition, I started asking the question, are there practices within Christianity uh, that, that, that offer a parallel to what's rather ubiquitous now? Um, you know, more recently, I, I kind of coined the phrase meditative diversity, meaning that right now when we think about meditation, most people think about mindfulness or now loving kindness meditations are really popular right now to cultivate self-compassion, compassion for others, at least in, in psychology, uh, in our literature. And so uh, I started thinking about, you know, are there practices within the Christian tradition 
that Christian clients uh, or, or just maybe Christians in general who are struggling with psychological suffering uh, could turn to that, that parallel Eastern practices. Uh, so that led me to sort of mining the Christian tradition with, with the hard hat, with the light mm-hmm. on, um, and recognizing, you know, as Ecclesiastes says, you know, there's nothing new under the sun. And so in many ways, I've seen in clinical psychology, we kind of turn to prior generations and, and writings, whether it's philosophy uh, or religion. Uh, you know, psychology initially was housed within philosophy and, 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 and theology. And so uh, I, I see that over and over again. We kind of turn uh, back to prior generations, writings from the past to try to make sense of contemporary suffering. And so wanting to do that in the Christian tradition. Well, I love it. I, I appreciate a, a bit of background there. Uh, to start the conversation, for someone maybe not familiar, what would you say, broadly speaking, falls under this umbrella of contemplative practices? Yeah. So, uh, you know, if, if we were to kind of define contemplation in the Christian tradition, uh, you know, as maybe a, a present moment awareness of God's perfect love or, or uh, a loving awareness of God, something along those lines, uh, I think it, it goes all the way back to probably the early desert Christians, um, um, Evagrius and, and, and others, uh, you know, uh, who, who, who talked about sort of wordless prayer. Uh, then moving into the Eastern Orthodox tradition and the Jesus prayer, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Uh, these practices are what we might call apophatic, uh, which is really kind of wordless and imageless, or we might say downplaying the use of words and imageless, this idea that that uh, at, the end, at the end of the day, God is ineffable uh, beyond words. So, you know, in the Old Testament where, uh, you know, God says, you know, tell tell uh, the Pharaoh that I am sent you, right? This idea that at the end of the day, words don't fully capture. So I think in Christianity, uh, in, in these spiritual practices with contemplation, we typically think of it as an apophatic practice uh, where, where at a certain point, words sort of drop off and there's a direct experience of God beyond words, often, you know, reaching out to God in love. If we fast forward to, you know, the cloud of unknowing and, you know, medieval times and and uh, the anonymous writer there talks about reaching out to God in a, a cloud of unknowing and putting everything else beneath the cloud of forgetting. So there's this rich heritage within Christianity of contemplative practices, often wordless, imageless, or or maybe we, we use one word to focus all of our attention on God, as in God or love. And that's in contrast, typically, with what we might call the, the cataphatic tradition, which is, you know, using words, using images, um, and, and typically what we may call biblical meditation, meditating on God's attributes or actions. Uh, an example there might be in the Puritan tradition. Uh, Puritans have dozens of writings on Christian meditation, uh, anchored typically to Scripture, Anchored, anchor, anchored to who God is in Scripture, God's attributes, God's actions, God's providence, maybe heaven. Um, and, and I would say to wrap it all up, um, we might look to the monastic practice of Lexio Divina or divine reading that has four uh, stages. One would be reading, you're reading Scripture, then you're meditating or a deeper pondering on Scripture, uh, and then you're praying to God. And then you're contemplating. So I think Lexio Divina uh, kind of balances what we might call the cataphatic with the apophatic, or we might say meditation 
and contemplation. So that's sort of a, maybe a, a quick way to, to wrap up these, these different streams within Christianity. And how would you say some of these contemplative practices, generally speaking, help us navigate our thoughts, maybe anxiety, rumination, things like that? Yeah, so so the interesting thing, how I try to kind of marry these streams, you know, or, or I should say kind of uh, allow these streams to converge or marry these different uh, schools of thought together, you know, clinical psychology and Christian contemplative practices, you know, the apophatic tradition downplays the use of words. So in our own, you know, inner world, we can be especially chatty, we can be especially... Um, you know, ruminative in our thinking, just, you know, going over and over and over material. Uh, in, in, in the Christian monastic tradition, they, they talk about rumination, kind of like a cow chewing cud in the field, just kind of all day long chewing. And so we, uh, for, for most people, I think there is this tendency to kind of chew, you know, um, cognitive material over and over and over again. Uh, and, and this can be problematic when we get into rumination in the form of, you know, depressive material, so, you know, ruminating about a guilt-ridden past, or anxiety, uh, worrying about a uncertain, uh, unknown, uh, p- possibly catastrophic future. And so whether we're ruminating in the past or worrying in the future, we can really get lost in the human mind. From the Christian tradition, we would say it's, you know, fallen. Uh, and so the question becomes, what do we do with all this mental activity? And I think the contemplative tradition offers us really sort of a solution there in the sense that uh, for, for many of these practices, I would describe them as an indirect method where you're really noticing and then shifting. So noticing rumination, noticing worry, and then shifting towards, you know, God's attributes, God's actions, God's providence. Uh, you know, the Puritans meditated on heaven. Uh, oftentimes more than anything else. And so uh, and a quick example might be the Jesus prayer. Uh, you know, there's a, lo- a short version and a long version, but essentially it's Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me is the probably the, one of the earlier versions. And, and in the uh, Eastern Orthodox tradition, uh, the Jesus prayer is used for a variety of reasons to practice God's presence, uh, but also to cultivate what's called watchfulness or in Greek, nepsis. Uh, as well as uh, an inner stillness, uh, which is, you know, in Greek, hezekia, uh, but which is really an inner stillness, an inner uh, silence, an inner concentration. So kind of combining these ideas, when we have this, you know, rumination or this worry, we then pivot towards uh, the Jesus prayer, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. And we're, uh, the, the Eastern Orthodox uh, monks would say, we're kind of protecting the heart there. And we're preventing this, you know, ruminative or worrying material from distracting us from, from practicing God's presence. Uh, and so throughout the day, we're noticing when we're ruminating or worrying, and then we're sort of gently shifting or gently pivoting towards the Jesus prayer, or maybe a prayer word like God or love, or just simply Jesus and doing so over and over again helps us to develop what clinical psychologists call metacognitive awareness. So this awareness of our thinking, uh, really kind of a bird's eye view or a balcony view or maybe like a Google Earth view of our inner world uh, that takes place over time as we engage in these various practices. I like that Google Earth view. 
Let me ask. It seems like most religious traditions have some sort of rituals or prayers that are connected with with beads. Sometimes I think uh, I, I don't know if there's any accuracy to the Jesus prayer. Sometimes being connected with a beadwork. Um, obviously, you have rosaries and things like that in the in the Christian faith. Why is that, and what what's the what role does that play? Yeah, that's a great question. So I have a few. Uh, I, I'm not as familiar with the rosary and Catholicism, but I, I do have a few prayer ropes, uh, you know, for the Jesus prayer within the Eastern Orthodox tradition. And, uh, you know, I have one that I, I think it might be 25 um, knots uh, and then one that's 100. Um, so one, you know, I could easily put in my pocket. I, I received that one actually at a conference when I was talking about the Jesus prayer and somebody from the Eastern Orthodox tradition came to me and after and said, you know, here's a prayer rope. I want to give this to you. And, and, uh, and that led me down sort of a path of, of really my, in my own practice, uh, using the prayer rope. And I think for some, it's, it's a way to keep count. Uh, I think though, there's something about, physiologically anchoring us to sort of this this blend of mental and physical so you you are sort of in the eastern orthodox tradition you're trying to kind of what what they call push the head into the heart so the idea is to sort of say the prayer coming out of your 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 inner be- most being the, the heart and so that it would begin to repeat itself you know through the work of the holy spirit um, but but then having that prayer rope, it, it's there's just an interesting experience that emerges when you're sort of moving along that prayer rope as you're practicing, sort of this integration of physical and mental. And so uh, I, I'm not exactly sure all the psychological reasons maybe for it, but pragmatically, I think it's to keep count. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, maybe you uh, end up twice a day formally, you know, saying the prayer a hundred times, and you just move through the the prayer rope one time each each practice um but but I, I do think there is probably something to uh, physically sort of grounding yourself in that practice uh that i think is probably yet to be fully investigated from a scientific perspective let me ask you mentioned something earlier about this uh visual of streams converging when it comes to thought it, it it seems like we can either desire or there's this understanding of controlling our thoughts instead of maybe allowing them to to stream and then discerning which of those thoughts we want to entertain and maybe put into practice. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting because I've been as a clinical psychologist and I think the clinical psychology literature has also been grappling this with this. What do we do with these types of symptoms, right? Uh, do we try to reduce or eliminate certain thoughts or relate differently to them? Uh, and, and I think we've arrived at the conclusion that that thought stopping simply doesn't work. I mean, there was a period of time where, where therapists would recommend to a client maybe, a te- you know, a, putting a, a rubber band around your wrist and when you started worrying, snapping it or something. And, and that would be a way to sort of, you know, jar your mind into sort of uh, letting go of the thought. But but I think the idea is it's in the nature of the mind to continue to monitor the thing we're supposed to not be thinking about, right? So there's a great metaphor in one type of therapy called acceptance and commitment therapy where it's called the beach ball metaphor. And and the idea being that when you try to hold a beach ball underwater, if you have a pool or in the ocean, it just pops back up 
you know, uh, with with great force. And I think that's what happens when we try to uh, reduce or eliminate our thinking that one, we have to keep monitor monitoring the thing we're not supposed to be thinking about. And so we end up thinking about it. But two, we end up feeling discouraged and demoralized because that's just not how the mind works. So I think it's it's more helpful. Uh, and this is where I think in the Eastern Orthodox Church, they, they talk about the Jesus prayer being an indirect method. You don't get into a, a arm wrestling match with your thoughts. Instead, you notice them. And then I would describe it as a gentle shift or a gentle pivot, uh, not a violent kind of shift uh, or, you know, the, sort of this compulsive need to to eliminate by, you know, forcing it behind you kind of a thing, but just noticing it, noticing the, we might say the fallen human mind or the imperfect human mind. And there's my mind, there it goes again. And then shifting toward, and, and I think throughout Christianity, uh, we've looked to scripture for God's promises, God's attributes, God's ap- actions as a anchoring point. Um, you know, early on, I think the, the early desert Christians, uh, you know, moving out to the deserts of Egypt, Palestine, Syria, to kind of reject uh, institutionalized Christianity, you know, around, you know, starting maybe around the year 300 or maybe a little bit before that with Antony. But uh, but I think the idea would be that, uh, you know, they look to Jesus and his temptations in the desert. You know, how did he respond to the temptations? Well, he recited scripture. And so Evagrius talks about, uh, you know, has a writing called Talking Back, which basically there are all these tempting compulsive thoughts. Sometimes they thought they came from demons, but I think also just being fallen human beings, we can sort of, they can, you know, uh, come from our own, our own sort of inner workings. But the idea being that we can recite scripture as a way to to not get into a, a, a shouting match with these thoughts, but to really engage in that gentle pivot. So I'm, I'm more convinced than ever now in my own research and writing and and just my own personal practices that indirect methods are more helpful than direct methods because you might never fully eliminate those thoughts and instead uh, recognizing the nature of the mind that it's going to you know be chatty and it's sort of like uh, the metaphor of riding in a car on a long trip with a, a talkative you know, a traveling companion sitting in the passenger seat, right? You can't just drop the person off at the next, you know, uh, rest stop, right? I mean, you're, you got to go with this person and, or, or maybe it's, you know, they, they like music that you don't or something. And so you have to find a way to endure with them in the car. And so uh, you can't eliminate uh, the, mm-hmm. the chattiness. And so I think that's a good way of trying to understand the inner world that we can't eliminate our thoughts, but we can shift our focus towards something else to, 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 you know, cultivate focus, sustained attention. To follow up with you, Josh, on this idea of the gentle shift, how would you recommend someone do that in the, in the heat of everyday life? Any thoughts on, on making that, that gentle shift? Yeah. So, I mean, I think, I think what we're talking about there is the skill of flexible attention, right? That, that, that we can practice, you know, it's inevitable that the mind will wander. Uh, it does. So, you know, there's some newer research on mind wandering. That's really fascinating that the idea that we, we, our mind just wanders throughout the day. Uh, and, and so it, we, we prepare for that, right? So we don't want to lose before we begin by having unrealistic expectations that I'm going to mm-hmm. be able to be focused all day long, though the mind will wander inevitably. And when it does, uh, you know, we, we notice, we notice when the mind there, there, my mind goes again, worrying or ruminating or, 
focusing on something that I didn't, uh, you know, plan on. And then we bring ourselves back. And there, I think there, there often is a, some sort of anchoring point, you know, in, in uh, Buddhist mindfulness, it might be mindfulness of breathing. So bringing yourself to, to an awareness of the breath, uh, and because we're always breathing with our autonomic nervous system in the here and now. Um, and so that might be a, a way to sort of, you know, if it happens a thousand times in a minute, that's a, you know, the idea, the reframe is there's a thousand opportunities to bring ourselves back to the present moment. For Christians, it might be, I like to think of it as sort of a, a short verse in scripture. Maybe it's God is love or even, you know, the, the words drop off and it's just love. Or maybe it's just the name Jesus or uh, some other short passage, uh, thinking about it almost like, you know, chewing a piece of gum all day long, that uh, I might lose awareness of the flavor of the gum and the act of chewing the gum, and then I bring my attention back to it. And, and But there's something that I can return to throughout the day to kind of anchor myself to the present moment and focus my attention. I'm curious... As a clinical psychologist, uh, you you mentioned early on this this integration of, of some of these uh, meditation practices. What are your thoughts on integrating contemplative practices, kind of separate from the actual religious tradition? Any any concerns there? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a there's actually a debate right now in clinical psychology on that, given the import, uh, the popularity of, for example, mindfulness and loving kindness meditations, uh, you know, kind of being appropriated from the East. And, and there's a debate right now about how transparent therapists should be with clients about the origin of these practices. Um, are we losing some of the benefits when they're not when when they're disconnected from a larger you know uh, set of of morals and ethics and a, a, a larger worldview and uh, you know praxeology and way of living life and and all those things that uh, that come from a religious worldview, can we uh, you know d- disconnect it from its roots and still you know, reap the same benefits and, or are we even using these practices correctly? Um, You know, the word that comes to mind is, you know, teleology or the telos. What's the purpose of these practices? Uh, You know, sort of like um, if I'm playing tennis for for anybody who likes playing sports, uh, sort of like uh, if I bring, I'm just going to come up with something random, like a a typewriter to the tennis court and I can kind of turn it over and use the bottom to hit the, the ball across the net uh, and somebody who plays tennis would look at me in an odd way, of course, and say, yeah, you're getting it across the net, but that typewriter was never meant to be used to play tennis, right? <laughs> and so I think in a similar vein, uh, many of these practices, it's sort of like um, – what are we doing with these practices? Or, you know, for, for people who have young kids, I think it's, um, uh, 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 what's, what's the movie with the, uh, the mermaid, um, oh, I'm blanking on the name right now, but, uh, and then there's, there's sort of the, uh, the seagull Scully and he, you know, sort of is naming all these, uh, you know, sort of, uh, human, uh, contraptions. And he had, he, I think he picks up like a, a uh, oh, the Little Mermaid's the name of the movie. He picks up a, a like a spoon or a, and he calls it a snarf blad or something like that, right? And so, <laughs> are we do we run the risk of you know if it's a verb snarf blading, right? This idea mm-hmm. that we we take these uh, the these things from a, a, a tradition 
disconnect the the thing from its roots and then try to make it our own relabeling it repackaging it but but do we really know what it is meant to do uh what's the purpose of it um an example might be uh, you know, mindfulness. Mindfulness was never meant to reduce or eliminate symptoms. And yet oftentimes the way we design our studies is we're looking, you know, pre to post intervention from, you know, week one to week eight in, in an eight week mindfulness course, we're looking to see a reduction in symptoms of depression or anxiety or whatever it is. And then we say, oh, look, it's it's helpful for people. But was mindfulness ever meant to be uh, a strategy for reducing or eliminating symptoms. Same with with uh, in Christian practices. I would say that the primary aim is a deeper, more loving communion with God, and the byproduct can be relating differently to symptoms. But that's not the primary aim. We we don't want to turn these practices into mere instruments in the service of our own you know needs. But instead, these are um, practices that are meant to deepen our relationship with God first and foremost. I really appreciate that. Thank you for uh, elaborating on that, Josh. I wanted to get your mm-hmm. thoughts. I've got this quote here from from Thomas Merton that I think connects with this idea. It's we often think of whether it's meditation or, or or something similar as relaxation or some sort of stress reduction, which maybe it maybe it could be, but he writes that let no one hope to find in contemplation an escape from conflict, from anguish, or from doubt. And you know, elaborates how it's often on the on the contrary, this the challenge of, of sitting quietly. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think we have to be careful and in my own research and writing, be careful that we're not sort of encouraging this idea that it's about reducing or eliminating. Uh, I think it's about relating differently to the idea being that we can more um, courageously endure because God is with us. Uh, there's there's a, a, a Greek word in the New Testament that I really love. It's one of my favorite words called hupomane, which is uh, basically, a, you know, often it's, it's patience in, you know, the New International Version and a few others, but really it's a, a hopeful endurance. It's, it's sort of, uh, you know, the theme of Revelation, uh, it's, it's, you know, the, the endurance that's talked about the early Christian martyrs, uh, as they were being marched to the Colosseum, you know, the prayers that they would endure. And so I, I would say that these practices help us, uh, my, my idea is that these practices would help us more confidently endure, endure uh, in a fallen, broken world, not reduce or eliminate. I sort of see it as, within Christianity, see it as, uh, you know, kind of being empowered by the Holy Spirit to more confidently walk with Jesus, the Son, home to the Father, uh, to, to, to realize the beatific vision, to be face-to-face with God forever. But on the way, life is difficult. And so we need a trustworthy traveling companion. It doesn't mean that we don't walk through suffering, but we have someone to walk with us through it. But along the way, I mean, it can be challenging. There are these, you know, dark nights of the soul, as John of the Cross would say, uh, where we are having a hard time letting go of the things we're attached to. So, in you know, in Christianity, we call it a detachment. Uh, in in Buddhism, it's called non-attachment. But this idea that clinging creates suffering, and so many times these practices are about 
sort of open palms, letting go. And that's painful. That's a pain, whether it's in silence, sitting with God and or lamenting to God or, you know, listening for God's still small voice or that gentle whisper. Uh, that's painful. It's painful. And so there's no move going around it. You have to walk through it, but you have a trustworthy traveling companion. I think that's sort of how I make sense of it. If you're working with someone and they're looking to integrate a, a stillness practice into their life, is that something that you might prepare them for and, and talk about the challenges? As you mentioned, endurance, it makes me think of running or something like that. It's those initial, the, there is a real challenge and a real endurance that maybe needs to be built up. Um, that you'd have to get through. Is that how you see it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it could be just a few minutes to start and then uh, gradually increasing the time spent in silence, um, recognizing that people are, are busy and have busy lives. And um, I think the parallel would be, but I think it's, you know, in smaller doses probably. But if we go all the way back to the early desert Christians, the desert fathers and mothers and the sayings of the desert fathers, uh, they talked often about it. And still to this day, I mean, the the monastic cell, right? The idea of, uh, you know, the small room that they would live in. And there was, you know, a saying that was circulated, uh, you know, uh, go back to your cell. Essentially, your cell will teach you everything. There was this need to stay in the cell and not flee from the cell because mm. you had to face your temptations. And I think there's a parallel with the 21st century psychotherapy room that psychotherapy is about, you know, <clears throat> verbalizing painful experiences uh, and not fleeing from the psychotherapy room, that's really kind of like the cell. And the cell really represents the inner world, right? That you're not to flee from it, but to get to know it and to face it. And so whether it's, you know, psychotherapy or professional counseling uh, or just meditative or contemplative practice, I think we all have to find ways to slow down, to face the inner world courageously, to not flee from it. Because, you know, the idea is that, you know, it, the early desert Christians would talk about, you know, if you flee from the cell and you go to the next city, you know, trouble will basically be there waiting for you. The, the common denominator is me, right? And so <laughs> I have to find a way to slow down, to be quiet enough, uh, and to, it's sort of like um, uh, there are a few, I think, great uh, kind of metaphors for this inner stillness. You know, one would be uh, I've, I've read one would be a sort of like a spider remaining incredibly still on the web to sense the vibrations of its prey. And so we need to remain, you know, outer stillness can lead to inner stillness, but we need to slow down and be still to, to watch the inner world, to get to know it to not be compulsive in, you know, hurrying about, uh, you know, over-consuming energy drinks or coffee or just just constantly running around to distract. Or one other illustration might be uh, a snow globe, sort of uh, how do you get the snow in a snow globe to settle? You have to just let it sit on the shelf. And that's sort of like the inner world. We have to just sit uh, in order to face uh, these inner experiences. And I think what happens over time from a Christian perspective, inviting God to be with us in the proverbial cell uh, helps us to recognize that, you know, if, if God is sovereign, 
then then you know ultimately he has control and we can trust in that and surrender to that but that's a gradual process so to to circle back to your question it could be that someone starts with you know if it's psychotherapy they they get to know the therapist and they begin to verbalize the inner pain and explore that and and they're staying put like that early desert christian and not fleeing you know the their location for for someone practicing it could be 5 minutes a day of just turning inward to get to know the inner world. And then if it's a Christian, you know, inviting God to be with them in that and to recognize that whatever's emerging won't hurt them or destroy them. So it's a gradual process, but I think it's necessary for for psychological and spiritual health. And as you mentioned, this idea of facing and sitting, where does acceptance come in? I I hear you earlier, you mentioned um, acceptance commitment therapy how do you mm-hmm. see that playing and in, in integrating with maybe a stillness practice? Yeah, it's a great question. So there are you know different words that emerge. I think that are, are close close enough to be sort of synonyms here. Um, you know, the one of the the developers of of ACT, Steve Hayes, he he points out I think rightly that the the kind of the root of the Latin root for uh, acceptance is to take what is offered. Uh, or, or we might say, if we look at, you know, older, dust off older dictionaries, it's sort of to receive willingly. And so the idea is that acceptance isn't the same as agreement. Um, we, we're, we're not necessarily masochists here going and enjoying pain and looking for pain. It will find us, right? And so how are we able to uh, recognize the reality of it and that it's not going away? For Christians, uh, I think we might look at a, a, a parallel being surrender. Um, I've been especially fascinated with this idea of God's providence, uh, God's good governance or protective care, that God is active and present, not from a maybe a deist perspective that God just starts starts the world and then goes and does something else, but that God, God is God is intimately involved. And so, what might that look like to recognize that God is? revealing through things to me in the inner world and and present with me in the inner world uh you know the the jesuits have a saying you know finding god in all things is god even present in the midst of my suffering and that that's that's a tough one and that people have to work that out with fear and trembling and but from my own perspective i find a deep comfort in knowing that god is with me in the suffering and and revealing things to to me in the suffering so uh, what might be a way to cultivate acceptance with these practices um, to get to know the inner world and to accept that it's there and to ask important questions like, God, what are you revealing to me in this pain? Uh, you know, if if our emotions are God-given signals. So we often have this adversarial relationship with with our more painful emotions, you know, sadness, fear, anxiety, uh, the moral emotions, guilt and shame. But, but I would say in a fallen, broken world, from a Christian perspective, that, that these are important emotions that serve as signals. Uh, they, they, they reveal vital information about us and our relationships, uh, you know, what we value. And so to slow down to accept them is to make peace with them and to recognize, to, to use uh, acceptance and commitment therapy language again, that our, our, these painful emotions can actually be a friend or an ally. Um, that we don't often think about in that way, but to reframe them and as a friend or an ally or a God-given signal helps us to be more willing to accept them and to ask that important question of, you know, God, what are you revealing to me in the midst of this pain? 
I love that. And I love this idea of, of surrender. I've, I've got a question for you around the St. Francis prayer. Mm-hmm. And you've mentioned pivot, you've mentioned surrender. And I want to kind of give the gist of it for the, for the listeners, but sure. it begins with Lord, make me an instrument of your peace where there is hatred. Let me sow love. And it continues on. And then halfway it, it brings up, it connects with surrender for me or some sort of pivot. Mm-hmm. And the second half is, O divine master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, as mm-hmm. to be understood, as to understand, to be loved, as to love. And it continues, and it seems to be, it's like this transcending the self. There's some sort of pivot mm-hmm. that is happening there. What are your thoughts on that, Josh? Yeah, so I'm right in the middle of, so so I've you know, done some writing and research on, you know, Christian practices. Sometimes they're kind of on their own, a newer book, Christian Meditation and Clinical Practice. Sometimes they're embedded in um, psychotherapy models that are already there, like acceptance and commitment therapy. So I wrote a book on faith-based act. Uh, And then right now I'm working on the workbook companion, which is essentially for clients, but also I think for a lay audience too, to to go right directly to the consumer, right? To for them to 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 hopefully benefit, and I'm I, I talk about three pivots in uh, and pivot is is act language, but I really like it. This idea of this shift or this pivot, um, we're always making pivots in life, or at least we we need to be because we wander, we stray, uh, you know, like the, the the story of the lost son, right? We're just always you know off off the path, and we need to get back on. But I, I talk about three pivots: a pivot from inner to outer a pivot from self to other. And then uh, this one is from act, a pivot from from fear to love. So the first pivot would be from inner to outer, meaning that these practices are hopefully um, uh, help us to to be be less preoccupied with the inner world so we can more fully engage with others and God, you know, outside of ourselves. I think there is in the 21st century this preoccupation with the self so much so that there's just this added suffering because I think we were designed to worship. We were designed to look beyond the self and it's deeply dissatisfying to just stay, you know, to, 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 to regularly turn inward as if that's, that's where the, the, the landing place or, or our final destination. So, so uh, from, from inner to outer and then self to other, and the other would be, you know, capital O other, and then lowercase other, right? So, so the two greatest commandments in the New Testament: love God, love others. Uh, that, that that there's a shift from me to to other people. Whether that's my own suffering helps me to understand and respond to other people's suffering with compassion and grace and mercy. Um, uh, to, to to be responsive to to others. Um, and uh, and then also to to more deeply loving love God and prioritize God's will and to surrender to God's will and to to be thinking about you know what the Puritans called uh, you know heavenly mindedness or spiritual mindedness uh, uh, a bigger picture perspective on life so I don't just get lost in my own experience so so I think that's a shift and going all the way back from a Christian perspective to the fall. You know, who's at the center of the garden, right? Is it is it me or is it God? Am I dependent on God or or like God um, in my strivings? And and so I think there's a constant battle there, and um, and and coming to grips with the reality that we are finite and dependent, 
is is a huge shift, right? That I am not self-sufficient. Uh, and so there's a constant need to reach for God because I am I have I'm not designed to be autonomous. I am not designed to be independent. And that that's something we have to grapple with because throughout, throughout the day, I know for me, I, I, I go at it alone and I have mm-hmm. to recognize where, where did I end up, right? The wrong side of town all over again. I'm alone. It's dark. It's, it's uh, scary. And I need to, you know, travel mm-hmm. back home to the outstretched arms of the, of the, of the father, you know, if we use the story of the lost son again, but so, so that, and then the, 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 the third pivot would be from fear to love um, to, to rest in God's love. To, 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 to bask in, in God's, you know, sort of uh, loving presence and to practice God's presence uh, and to see God's goodness in, in all of creation. So those would be kind of the three pivots uh, consistent with what, with what you mentioned uh, with that famous prayer. And, and I think it's a powerful thing to recognize, to, to build in the reality that we will inevitably wander and that when we have the quickest way back is, you know, I think in one of C.S. Lewis's writings, he talks about the quickest way back is to turn around and head back in the opposite direction, <laughs> not, not to keep, you know, to keep stubbornly heading down our own path. <laughs> I love that. I'm familiar with that quote from C.S. Lewis of progress sometimes being uh, turning, turning around. I love it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've got a question, something you write in the book about worldviews being a powerful framework. Um, yeah. I completely agree. And oftentimes I, I read a lot of books and there's oftentimes not a lot about worldviews or perspectives and, you know, maybe some synonyms, views and beliefs to that. But something in the book is in, in Buddhism, these three insights or marks of existence Suffering, which we've kind of talked about, life is challenging, impermanence, things are always changing, and then non-self, this no fixed sense of self. Mm-hmm. Generally speaking, do you see these three as universal truths that, in a in a basic sense, align with a Christian perspective or just a human existence perspective? I follow the the Christian path myself, and I sometimes find it difficult to to discern the Christian worldview or perspective. It's not as clear cut. Yeah, I, I think it can be challenging. I think um, you know I've done some research and writing more recently on worldview. Developed a, a you know a Christian worldview scale that that I've been using for oh wow uh, in one one yeah, and so we're we're sort of. Um, shopping that with, you know, with a, with a journal right now. And I think we'll, we'll see it in the literature pretty soon here, I'm hoping. Um, but, but I think, I think I've been an advocate of, of thinking in worldview terms in psychology, because I, I think that we, we all have a worldview that we operate from. Um, it's, it's not, there are fuzzy boundaries there, right? I mean, it's not pure, um, but but I think being open and transparent about our worldview assumptions to, to maybe to first clarify what they are and then recognize we're operating from them behind the scenes. Um, one author talks about, you know, worldview is the deep structure of culture. Culture, oftentimes we're so fond of, and I think rightly so of talking about culture and cultural diversity in our contemporary society, which is, I think is great because I think culture is at the center. But I would say even at the center of culture is worldview uh, and, and worldview gives a deeper understanding 
uh, of, of more surface level, level cultural behaviors and, and, and um, differences there. So I think worldview is important. Um, you know, what are the major worldview categories? I think it's like, you know, theology, a view of God, a, a, a axiology, a, a view of values, uh, ontology, a view of reality, uh, epistemology, a view of knowledge. Uh, you know, there are a few other ones. So, so you can have these kind of proverbial hooks to hang the conversations on and to compare and contrast the various worldviews. But to, to answer your question about the three marks of existence, um, I do find that there's some wisdom with, even though I, I identify as a Christian um, and, and draw from Christian meditative and contemplative practices, I do find as I engage with, with you know, Buddhism and, and, and that, that literature in various ways that I think there are some insights there. There are so, there's some wisdom there. So, for example, suffering, I think a Christian view would, would agree that life is suffering, probably for different reasons. Um, you know, estrangement from God and the fall. Um, uh, and, but I think there, there, there is a reality of suffering that needs to be acknowledged in both traditions. There's a, there's an acceptance of, of some level of suffering in both traditions. And then the idea of, um, you know, impermanence, um, there might be some differences there, um, with, with impermanence in Buddhism versus a Christian understanding when it comes to the self, that's an interesting one because I think, I think, you know, from a Christian perspective, God created humans in his image. Some like, like Meister Eckhart would talk about non-duality, but, but I, I'm probably not as comfortable there. I, I would, I would say that there is still is a distinct self that's separate from God. Um, and, and so uh, I think, I think Christianity might talk in terms of the self found in Christ, or, or I like Merton's language of the true and false self. That's kind of what I've written on in some places in, in my writing. Um, so, so there's this false self that's outside of being in Christ that we strive for and we build, and but but the true self is found in Christ in our relationship with Christ. So that's probably how I would distinguish um, that the God, God did create us, um, as, as separate, but to be in communion with, uh, and to find uh, our identity in, and that, that union with Christ leads to a deeper friendship and communion and fellowship with God. So we can walk with God, but there is a distinction there. So, so I think there is a distinct self in Christianity, but, you know, some, some, uh, contemplative authors, you know, go right up to that line there as they talk about non-duality and sort of being in Christ and there's, there's, there's a loss of that distinction. I would probably be less comfortable with the complete loss of the distinction, but I think that there's, there can be mystical experiences where there's a, a self forgetfulness mm. and, you know, Jesus talks about self denial. So there's something there. There's some overlap if we look at a Venn diagram, but I wouldn't say they're uh, perfectly, um, yeah. you know, overlapping circles. Well, this has been great. Our time definitely flew by, and I've I've got a couple wrap-up questions for sure. you, if if I could. And the first one is something we ask most guests, time permitted, is how you define or think about wisdom in daily life. I mean, I think on a basic level, uh, from a you know, just a general perspective, you know, it, it, wisdom is you know a, a, a certain perspective on life. Um, I think that, you know, from a from a Christian perspective, um, you know, what kind of comes to mind as I think spontaneously about this is, um, 
you know, I think I mentioned this before, but the the, the Puritans talked about a, a heavenly minded perspective. I think there's there's wisdom in, if we might call it, seeing the you know recognizing the grand narrative of Scripture or or the bigger picture perspective to keep things in perspective. Um, it, it's sort of like um, if we had a, a a thousand piece jigsaw puzzle. One one of my um, um, colleagues who I write with is a philosophical theologian. He gave me this metaphor, but if we have a, a, a box top and we have the pieces, if we just scatter the pieces out on the table, it can be really, really difficult to put them together. So we need a box top, right? To, to be able to put all the pieces together. And I think that's what our various worldviews offer. Uh, Christianity offers the box top uh, to, to make sense of how do I fit the various pieces, uh, you know, uh, the, my experiences together. And so I, I think wisdom is about seeing, seeing the bigger picture perspective in life, whether it's in the context of suffering, uh, in, in the context of COVID and this pandemic that caught everybody by surprise and has completely derailed uh, the way we've lived life for the last couple of years. Uh, so, so I think in part wisdom is, is holding to a, a, maybe a more transcendent perspective to keep things, uh, in, in, you know, uh, in in perspective um, from a from a, a larger viewpoint. How do you remember to do that, Josh? How do you remember to maybe zoom out and and get a broader perspective? That's a good question. I mean, I think one of the historic, you know, practices in Christianity is 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 reading scripture and and meditating on scripture and 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 throughout the day like chewing that piece of gum, having um, you know, God's word as something like the cow chewing cud in the field that we're constantly uh, you know, if we if we go through the four steps of Lexio Divina or divine reading, and and that's integrated into life, um, you know, one one monk talks about you know the 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 it being sort of like you know the experience of eating. You know, you you uh, bite, uh, you know, as as reading scripture, then you chew as meditating, then you taste as praying, and then you savor. And so, if mm. we're going through that, and we're really internalizing God's word. And it's it's sort of like an outside to inside to outside process where where mm. I'm interacting with the word, I'm internalizing it, and then it becomes how I go about my day and and keep this perspective in mind and and understand that there's a spiritual reality beyond just the material world and the fallenness and the brokenness and the suffering. So I think it's a it's a regular interacting. So if we if we might look at it as as divine revelation, right? The idea that on my own. I don't have the ability, I don't have the vantage point to make sense of it all from a bigger picture perspective. And I need something outside of myself. And for Christians, it would be divine revelation to keep that perspective in mind through regularly consuming and interacting with, like I regularly need to eat, I regularly need to drink. Mm -hmm. And so the same way would be, I regularly need to, to consume divine revelation to keep things in perspective. Well, thank you for that. that. That's great. And then just one final thing. I was checking out your faculty page, and I found this quote from John of the Cross that I, I want to read and, uh, and just sure. get your thoughts on to, to close. Uh, the quote is, I saw a river over which every soul must pass to reach the kingdom of heaven, and the name of the river was Suffering. And then I saw a boat which carries souls across the river, and the name of that boat 
was love. What's that quote mean to you? You know, I think there's just something so, I mean, as somebody who suffered, I would say pretty significantly early on in life, I had some experiences that were kind of worldview shattering and I had a prodigal period for a long time. Um, I've been fascinated by suffering and, and the redemptive and refining elements of suffering. Um, and, and I think that, you know, there's, for from a Christian perspective, there's no greater example than than looking at the cross and and you know m- moving from the incarnation to you know uh, the the atonement and and you know the idea that that there that that God reconciled humankind to Himself through this experience of tremendous suffering and so I think there's just something so fascinating about that. Um, you know, it's John three sixteen for for God so loved the world, right? And and so the idea that that suffering can actually be reframed as having um, purpose. Uh, it, it, it's interesting that I, if I go back to ACT or acceptance and commitment therapy, um, the, Steve Hayes of ACT talks about sort of uh, converting pain into purpose. Uh, and, and from a Christian perspective, I think that's what life is about, right? Is is you know, converting pain into purpose. And so in the midst of suffering, um, we, we can find a deeper, more loving communion with God uh, if, we, if we look for it and we invite God into it. So, so I think there's just something mysterious about that that I've always been fascinated with because I, I, you know, early on in life, I could not run from suffering. And so I had to find a different path forward. And I think recognizing the deeper uh, love of God in the midst. So we're walking with the God of love through suffering. I think, I think there's something just, just um, uh, amazing about that. Well, thank you for sharing that and, and being so generous with your time. Uh, for the listeners, a reminder, the book is Christian Meditation in Clinical Practice. And if I could mention another book, uh, Stephen Hayes came up a few times in the conversation, The Liberated Mind. Uh, we'll, we'll link both of those in the in the show notes so you can check it out. Uh, but where do you point people interested in, in learning more about you and what you're up to in the world, Josh? Yeah, yeah. Thanks for that. Yeah, I mean, they can go to my website. It's just joshuanab.com, J-O-S-H-U-A-K-N-A-B-B.com. And I've tried to upload kind of a one-stop shop, um, upload everything I'm up to there if anybody wants to take a look. All right, great. Well, Joshua, thank you so much again for coming on In Search of Wisdom. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening. You can get the show notes and links to resources mentioned at perennialleader.com slash podcast. If you're interested in learning more, subscribe to The Path. It's our free weekly newsletter. These are short reflections on wisdom for everyday life right to your inbox. And lastly, I urge you to put what you heard into practice. Until next time, be wise and be well.